0: Good morning, everybody. Good. Good to see you all. All the cafe. Welcome, you guys. Hope you're good as well. Bought two bags of eyeballs yesterday uh, to give out to the kids of the church. Um, my wife said, "Do you really think the pastor should be handing out eyeballs at Halloween?" See, this is my wife. I love my wife, but she doesn't understand. This has nothing to do with Halloween. I would give out eyeballs year-round. <laughs> I mean. They're chocolate, I mean, you know chocolate eyeballs, I mean, I mean, what's just not awesome about that, if, if you could buy them year-round, which probably you should be able to, uh, if you could buy them year-round, I would still give them out year-round, but you know, you just can only find them at certain times of the year, so, so I bought two bags of eyeballs uh, to, to give the kids at church, and uh, uh, just pray for my wife, I mean, she'll, she'll eventually get, get this, with this, she'll get it. Uh, I, I love the kids of our church, I, I just really, I guess I'm the biggest kid in the church, uh, I may not give the eyeballs away at all, I may keep them for myself. Um, my favorite time to be a pastor is infant dedication. I love that probably as much as anything at all. I just love to take the little ones uh, from the parents in my arms and welcome them into the body of Christ, welcome them into the fellowship of the church. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, at infant dedication at Woodburn, we tend to pray three things toward the end of that ceremony, if you've ever been a part of that. I usually ask for three things, uh, voice three hopes on behalf of the church for the the child. And and, and those are these three things. We ask that they would, uh, we pray that they would learn always to stand up for the truth. That's the first thing, that they would stand up for the truth, that they would love goodness and that they would enjoy the beauty of God wherever these things are found. The first thing we say is that they would learn always to stand up for the truth. Those are very, very important words. When I say those words over every child, uh, those words matter. And to ask that a child learn to stand up for the truth is probably one of the most important things we could pray for, because truth matters more than anything. Do you understand that? Truth matters more than anything. However, when we begin asking that a child learn to stand up for the truth, there's a lot to that. And honestly, it may be one of the darker things we ever ask a child to do, but because standing up for the truth will never be popular Standing up for the truth will never be convenient, and very honestly, standing up for the truth can get you killed, which brings us to Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Daniel chapter 3, very, very fine, small group study written by Claude Johnson. You'll have an opportunity later to, uh, to look at that together. I pray you will. If you're using the Uversion Bible app, I invite you now to find the live event for this service and follow along there. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to start with verse 1 and walk right through this passage. This is a familiar story. It doesn't mean you've ever heard it, though. So let's start together and look deeply into the Word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace." So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, let's stop right there. Last week, remember the, the very previous chapter, what happened? I, I was under the impression that some of you were here <laughs> last week. What happened last week? Chapter 2, you remember? King Nebuchadnezzar had a? Dream, right? He had a dream. And what was in his dream? Yeah, a statue, a a statue that was made of all kinds of different materials, but there was a head of gold. And who was the head of gold? King Nebuchadnezzar himself. He was the head of gold. So so notice that. He has a dream of of a a mighty statue, and he himself is a head of gold. So in the very next episode, what does he do? He makes a statue. He liked that idea so much. You get that? He loved the idea so much, he went and made a statue. And this time, the entire statue is gold. Now, the text doesn't specifically say that the statue is of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. But who do you think it would be? Elvis? I mean, obviously, this is a statue that, that is meant to represent loyalty and worship of King Nebuchadnezzar, he sets up a gold statue. It's very, very interesting and also in some ways alarming. Now, this is where my arts background comes out. I have a bachelor in fine arts. I'm an artist and I've done some sculpture. So just let me, let me just lay this out for you. What are the dimensions of this statue? What does it say exactly? He made a gold statue, verse 1, 90 feet tall. So that's how many stories? Nine stories tall. It's it's, it's a very, very tall statue, but how wide is it? Nine feet. Nine feet wide by 90, 90 feet tall. Nine stories tall. Do you see some problems with this? Now, if this is supposed to be some sort of human form like King Nebuchadnezzar himself, do you start to picture this? This is a very, very tall and skinny statue. In sculpture class back when I was in school, this would be like a D minus project. This would be a D minus. Those are not proper proportions. This would be like Noodle Man or maybe Pipe Cleaner Man. I mean, this statue would just be dumb. It's just dumb. So this is not a well-made statue. Let's just make that clear. You've got to picture it in your head. Those proportions are all off, and honestly, this thing is just dumb. So when he puts it on a cart and rolls it out in front of people, everybody ought to just laugh. I mean, this is comical. This is absolutely the most ridiculous atrocity that's ever been created. However, it becomes very important. What does he command in verse 6? Anyone who refuses to obey the command. And what's the command? You've got to worship this. Did I mention this would be the dumbest statue in all of the world? And everybody must worship it. What does it mean to worship? That word worship literally means worthship, to, to ascribe worth to something. In other words, when I worship something, what I'm saying is to, to that object or to that person, you are the most valuable, the most important thing in, in all the world to me. Understand that? To worship means to ascribe worth. And, and so you're saying that this is a worthy, the most worthy thing in all of the world to you. So... so This is what's being commanded that that when this, this, this horrible, ridiculous, I mean, laughable statue rolls out, everybody in all the world, in King Nebuchadnezzar's mind, it's not the whole world, but in his mind, everybody has to immediately roll on the ground in front of this thing and worship it. They have to begin to say, this is the most important thing in all the world. This is like God to me. It's an absolutely stunning and staggering commandment. But notice the the, the consequences. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, as I say, if you roll this thing out, I mean, I I think we'd want to laugh. This noodle man, this pipe cleaner man made out of gold, nine stories tall, it's just ridiculous. And now to be told to worship it? Now to somehow say that I must fall on my face and make this the very center of my world? Are you kidding me? It just seems like that the minute it comes out, everybody would just bust out laughing, except they don't. They don't. There's actually quite a worship service planned here, and you just really can't miss that. Notice notice how things go. People of all races, nations, languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the... Horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And as we read this story, I'm going to have to repeat that over and over and over. The the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes. I mean, this is an amazing worship service with a whole lot of huffing and puffing. Do you see that? I mean, there's a lot that goes into this, and there's a whole lot of horn blowing and a whole lot of piping and a whole lot of huffing and puffing. And and this is what I want you to see, because it says something about our own worship. The more huffing and puffing it takes to get your worship off the ground, the more likely that your God is false. Are you with me? The more huffing and puffing it takes to get your worship off the ground— the more likely it is that your God is false. You see, idols have to be propped up. If you're worshiping something that's false, it takes a whole lot of energy to breathe something into it. You gotta breathe life into a dead God, you understand? And so this in, incredible ceremony, this in, in, incredible show that takes place around this ridiculous, ridiculous statue is all intended somehow to, uh, to, to, to bedazzle and to stupefy and, and, and to cause the people to submit to this. Because what he's asking is, is, is ludicrous, to worship this monstrosity, this, this colossal, golden, nothing. It's ridiculous, and so there's a whole lot of huffing and puffing, a a whole lot of show, a whole lot of smoke and mirrors, because somehow you've got to convince these people that this is worth doing. It's not worth doing. This is a golden, nine-story, colossal nothing that they're commanded to to worship, And, and yet they worship. They worship. They just fall on their faces and roll in front of this thing like they've never seen nothing like it. And there's something puzzling about that. What would make people submit to something so ridiculous? Well, people who don't know the living God, understand? People who don't know the living God will worship most anything. Any dead God will do. I said that to worship means to ascribe worth to something, to say to an object or to a person, you are the most important, the most valuable thing in all the world to me. If that is worship, then you should probably stop and ask yourself right now, what is it in your life that is the object of your worship? It is whatever you have given first place to. Whatever you have said and you have, you have arranged your life around in such a way where that thing, that object, that person becomes the most valuable thing in all the world to you. This is worship. And if you really don't know the living God, then honestly, you'll worship most anything, which means a sports team would do or money, or a job, or, or a person, or even a celebrity, a movie star, a, a rock star, a singer. It's crazy what people will worship, but this is what I'm saying. For people who don't know the living God, any dead God will do. They'll worship nearly anything, and, and even though I'm speaking primarily to a church crowd, to a Christian crowd, that doesn't mean at all that you're worshiping the living God. Your actual life, I don't mean your church life, I mean your life life, your life life is most likely revolving around something that is not the living God at all, and you might not even notice that yet. You might not even realize that your actual worship is not really given in an hour on Sunday, but your actual worship comes down to how you give your life in the rest of the week. People who don't make the living God the focus of their life, the center of their worship, they'll tend to worship most anything at all, and, and honestly, Any dead God will do. So so King Nebuchadnezzar rolls this this nine-story idiotic statue out. It's it's a D-minus sculpture project. You understand? Rolls it out, and then the horns blow, and the pipes play, and it's the most amazing show. And everybody just falls to their face like they've never seen anything like it. They just begin to worship this thing like it's God, like it's the most stunning thing they've ever seen in their life. I said everybody, not everybody, not everybody. It's kind of amazing in the whole scene, there really only seem to be three that don't worship, only three that don't fall for this foolishness. We typically call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three. Now one question people often raise in this story is, where is, where's Daniel? Yeah, I mean, the book is called Daniel, and Daniel's kind of the star of this whole show, and it seems to be a book about Daniel. Where is Daniel? Well, if you go back to the end of chapter 2, it it sort of lays that out for you. At the end of the last story after Daniel told the king what his dream meant, it says in verse 49, chapter 2, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon. While Daniel remained in the king's court. So Daniel remains in in the capital city in the king's court. All of this golden statue mess, it rolls out first on the plain of Dura. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego seem to be in that location when this whole false worship thing rolls out. So Daniel is not there. This is a a local worship service, so to speak. So understand, Daniel's not present. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are present. And of all the people there that day that could possibly fall down and worship the gold and nothing, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do not, they do not bend their knee. Let's see what happens next. Verse 8. Some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you your majesty, they refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you, say it, One more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, but if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Isn't that the best dumb question ever? Some astrologers go to the king and inform on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who, who are they, astrologers? Well, obviously, the king's court is made up primarily of astrologers, wise men by Babylonian, pagan Babylonian standards. And honestly, in, in the kingdom, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel are among those wise men that make up the royal court. They're royal advisors. So these are royal advisors, astrologers, who are obviously motivated by What? But by jealousy, absolutely, but by jealousy, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, for that matter, continue to be promoted. God just blesses them for their obedience. They are blessed because of their integrity, because of the truth of their lives. They continue to outshine everybody else, and they just prosper. And it eats up their rivals. It eats up their peers. They just simply cannot stand the fact that these men who do not follow all of the same rules continue to prosper in advance. So one of the themes of the entire book of Daniel is the way these rivals are, are motivated by jealousy and continue to try to get Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego dragged back down or even taken out. So, so it's easy. The astrologers are motivated by jealousy. And when they realize that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't show up for the big colossal worship service, they immediately go to the king and report on them. Now, they want Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to, to, to be taken out of king's favor, hopefully taken out of everything. If they're motivated by jealousy, what motivates the king? Yeah, pride, sheer pride. And they know it's pride, so notice how they appeal to him. Well, what do they say? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge, they pay no attention, in verse 12, they pay no attention to you. Your majesty, they refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Yeah, notice how they play to his pride. They're challenging you. They refuse to be loyal to you, and it plays right into his pride. Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage, brings them in, and says, I, I can't believe you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up. I will give you one more chance. Okay, So the rivals are motivated by jealousy, and the king is motivated by pride. Honestly, that's what we see every day of our lives. None of that is surprising. We see people motivated by jealousy and pride every day of our lives. What we do not see are people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't see very many people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what motivates them? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, but even if he doesn't, Even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your God or worship the gold statue you have set up. I ask what motivates them. Let me back up to what's probably the more burning question. Why don't they fake it? ever thought about that? Why don't they just fake it? I mean, you know, when the music plays, just take a knee. I mean, you don't have to mean it. They wouldn't mean it. You could look like you're worshiping just to stay alive, but, you know, worshiping, I mean, you're not going to worship that big gold stupid thing. I mean, you know better. And In your heart, you're not worshiping it. I mean, you know, you could could bow on your face in front of it and just be thinking about your grocery list. I mean, you don't have to worship it. I mean, nobody knows what's in your heart. So why not just fake it? Yeah, you know, William says God knows, but, but but William honestly, you know, God knows, but the king's going to throw me in a furnace. I mean, I could fake it, stay alive, and deal with God later. Shatter at me, second they know the consequence of fake. There are consequences to faking it beyond staying alive. It's a critical question because my hunch is if most of us were in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's shoes, that's what we would have done. We would fake it. we just fake it. we just blend in. We don't mean it. We're not worshiping. We would be telling ourselves, this is not who I am. I, I know better. This is not anything. It's just a big gold statue. I'm just going to lay down and take a nap for a while. And when all this is over, I'll live to see another day. And I can get forgiveness from God. I'll deal with God later. But for now, I'm just going to stay. I'm going to do what I have to do to stay alive. I'll Fake this. Just fake this. I mean, honestly, isn't that what some of us would do? Yeah. Some of you are so upset. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not encouraging faking it. William says, it would forever come back to you. Yeah. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus talks about this. Jesus has a lot to say about this, and I'm going to kind of move through some verses here. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Let's start there. Jesus says this. I'll give you time. Keep turning. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says, look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. What's that mean? Sheep among wolves. We're the sheep. The world is full of wolves. What does that mean? Now nah, We're in trouble. We're in trouble. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and you'll be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and unbelievers about me. This will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and the unbelievers about me. What did ago say to King Nebuchadnezzar? Uh Whether we live or die, let's make one thing clear. We did not bow to your statue, and there is a God who can deliver us. It's your opportunity to tell them about me. Verse 26, jump down, verse 26, Matthew 10. Don't be afraid of those who threaten you. Don't be afraid of those who threaten you. For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. What I tell you now in darkness, shout abroad when daybreak comes. What I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. What? Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 32, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven, but everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Verse 39, if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you you will find it. Why don't they fake it? It comes down to whom they fear. Understand? It comes down to whom they fear. And and what Jesus says here is you, you don't fear people who can harm your body. Do not fear people or what they can do to you. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Don't fear people or what they can do to you. You fear God. You fear only God. Yeah, if you fake it, you'd be saying, you know I. The the king has power right now to take my life. I'll just, I'll bow to the king and I'll deal with God later. Do you understand what that says? No matter what you think it says, no matter how you tell yourself, this isn't me and I'm not really betraying God, I'm I'm really not worshiping this. No, no. What you're doing is absolutely revealing the, the allegiances of your heart. Your actions will always reveal the allegiances of your heart. If they bow before this statue, it doesn't necessarily mean that they believe the statue is a thing, but it does say that they believe the king is to be feared. And Jesus says, you do not fear people. You don't fear them for what they can do to you. The worst they can do is kill your body. Let them kill your body, Jesus says, because they can't touch your soul. It's what's inside that counts. It's what's inside that counts. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are those rare people who value more their soul. They value more who they are before God than who they are on earth. You can kill our bodies, they say. Whether we live or whether we don't live, it's beside the point. We will not bow to your statue. We will not bow. Don't fear people. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul, Jesus says. Fear only God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Oh Nebuchadnezzar, back back to Daniel. Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, but even if he doesn't, (laughs) But even if he doesn't, does that sound like faith talking? Even if he doesn't, are they doubters? No, no, no. These are men of such faith. And this is where most of us don't understand faith at all. We think that faith is just some sort of super confidence that what we want to happen is going to happen, and that's faith. It's sort of like positive thinking. If I just keep thinking strong enough that this is what's going to happen, and I just focus like a laser on how I want things to turn out, that's somehow what we call faith. That's not what faith is. Faith focuses like a laser, not on how I want things to turn out. Faith focuses like a laser on God, period, My faith is in God. My faith is not in faith. My faith is not in my confidence. My faith is not in what I hope will happen when this all turns out. My faith is in God. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have no consideration of of what's in this for them. Whether we live or whether we don't live is beside the point. There is a God who can deliver us. We will remain faithful to him no matter what you do to us. Do you see that? It's a simple principle. Your life is in God's hands, never the hands of others. Your life is in God's hands, never the hands of others. He will rescue us from your power, Your Majesty, but even if He doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, Your Majesty. We will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Those are pretty powerful words, but come on, guys. I mean, they start out by saying, We don't need to defend ourselves with you. We don't need to defend ourselves. Well, they kind of do. I mean, if this were me, I would have already called Flora Templeton Stewart. You understand? I mean, yeah, a defense. I, I would want to make an argument. It's, it's a stupid statue. This is dumb. I mean, I would want to make a defense. King Nebuchadnezzar, you're crazy. I, I mean, some kind of defense. I mean, when Stephen is about to be stoned, Stephen goes on preaching for like three pages of the Bible. I mean, I'd preach so long enough for no other reason just to just to put this off a little longer. Understand? I mean, I'd talk. I mean, you got any last words? Yes, yeah, sit down, buddy. Let me tell you my... I mean, I'd talk... I mean, they have no last words, really. They don't have anything to say. We don't have any reason to make a defense. I mean, I'd say something. I mean, don't they at least want to ask Daniel to, to feed their hamster? I mean, you know, something. That These guys are going to be dead. We have no reason to make a defense. We have nothing to say, King. Nothing to say. Why is it that they don't need to say anything? Because the truth of their lives speaks for itself. The truth of their lives speaks for itself. We have no reason to make a offense. We have nothing to say. Throw us in your furnace, but let something be clear. We never bowed. It's the truth of their lives, the truth of their lives speaks for itself. What about the truth of your life? There's nothing matters more than the truth of your life. I I guess the basic lesson of this story is simple, it's it's just better to die for the truth than to live a lie. They could fake it, they could fake it, but in the faking of it, even if nobody knows, they know, and God knows, and, and they have forfeited the truth of their life. If I lose that, why live? Well why would I live a lie? I just want you to consider your life and the truth of your life. Because my hunch is that many of us we fake a lot of things. Including when we're in church, we, we sort of fake this we we put on this persona that, that somehow we're worshiping God, that, that God is the most valuable important thing in our life, and and he's not. That's, that's a lie. If it's not true, and if if your life is not in, in one piece with, with the truth, if, if if the truth of your life is not in one piece with your faith, then then what value is your life? Wouldn't it be better to die for the truth than to live the kind of false lives that we live? Two questions, and we'll close. First first one is this. I didn't come up with a good way to say this. I apologize. You understand what I'm asking? What is your personal fake it point? Is that dumb? You, don't, you, don't, you know what I mean? What is your personal fake it point? How much pressure needs to be put on you to, to cause you to just uh, abandon the appearance that Christ matters? How much pressure does it take to cause you to just take a knee when the world's music plays? What? How much heat? has to be turned up under your life to cause you to remain silent when you should be speaking the truth? What's your personal fake it point? Jesus says, don't fear people, anything they can do to you. The worst they can do is kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Unfortunately, your soul is something you just give away because your fake at point is very low. It's your personal fake at point. Second question, does the truth of your life speak for itself? I'm not talking about what you say. I'm talking about what you do. And if people just watched you, I don't mean your, your church life, I mean your life life. If they just watched your life, would, would there be enough truth would there be enough of Christ? Would there be enough of your faith expressed in what you do that, that honestly the truth of your life would speak for itself? In Bible school, we teach the kids a, a little song. It's, uh, three good men lived very long ago. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. To an idol they would never bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Into the fiery furnace they were there for a cast. Nebuchadnezzar thought they'd never last. But God was there. He'd never let them go. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a terrifying story. It's a shattering story. The fact that we make it uh, such a cute story. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the flannel board are always smiling. The truth is, sometimes when you stand up for the truth, it makes things worse. The fact is, sometimes when you stand up for the truth, it will not be popular. It will not be convenient. Practice, when you stand up for the truth, it can get you killed. It would be better to die for the truth than to live a lie. Pray with me. Oh Lord Jesus, help us. Because truthfully, our lives do not reflect enough truth to say much of anything at all. God, those watching our lives would probably have no idea that in our hearts we at least tell ourselves that we've set apart Christ as Lord. God, we live lives that that are not true. We are different people at work. We become a different person at school. We become a different person with one set of friends and a different person with our families. A different person when we stand in the pulpit to preach than we are when we go home with our wives. or We have a way of bowing a knee or falling down before the world in whatever situation we need to, to Lord, to to save our own skin, to to look however we need to look, Lord, just simply to win the praise and and, and the pardon of people, God, help us. Because we who say that we follow the truth, we live a life that is so full of lies. God, we take every infant in our arms in this church and we beg that they would learn to stand up for the truth. God, give us courage, give us faith, give us lives, give us feet that will stand for the truth, no matter the cost. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, who is the truth.